of the retreat. And there's been a real settling in. Part of that settling in, my sense is, is this noticing of just how much changing weather there is inside. It's only, it's been a pretty short time, but a lot has been happening. As we've talked in the interviews today, uh, many are noticing just this shifting from sleepiness to obsessive thinking, to fear, to peacefulness, to pain in the knee, to back and forth, sensations, feelings, thoughts. This is one of the truths that gets revealed in mindfulness practice, that it's all changing. And another truth that seems to be really coming up a lot is that along with these changing weather states, there can often be this kind of global sense of not okay. Have you noticed some of that? (laughs) There are pockets of well-being. I've I've heard reports of that. (laughs) This global not okay, that there needs to be something more, something less, Frequently at the beginning of retreats, it takes the shape of doubt. It goes along the lines of, something's wrong with me, I'm not doing this right. Something's wrong with me in terms of I just don't fit with this practice, I don't have what it takes, I shouldn't be here. So doubt is a big one. But this not okay also takes the shapes of Uh, I just want less of this, you know, less sitting, less sitting still, less pain. I want more of something else, more food or sleep, right? (laughs) It can come in the shape of restlessness. I don't want this moment, I want something else. And there's this kind of uncomfortable movement in the body-mind. Or for many, sleepiness. Just kind of wanting to turn off the lights on the whole thing. It's very difficult when we are kind of stuck in that not okay place where there's this sense of something wrong to receive experience in the way Jack talked about last night, in a way that's very respectful and present. Because in some way, there's a pushing away, there's a resisting. So what I'd like to talk about tonight is how we can begin to trust our experience exactly how it is when it's arising. Really accept and open to what's arising in a way that can give us some more freedom in the midst of what really is going to continue to be changing weather. There might be more pleasant, but that's not the point. It's really how we can cultivate a wise, and compassionate way of relating to whatever's there. About six months ago, I was on the West Coast and I participated in a Native American sweat lodge, which is a ceremony some of you might know of, that takes place in this low structure that's on the ground and that's dark and you crawl in and sit in a circle and hot rocks are placed in there and it gets very, very hot. And you sit there and you're either praying or chanting or silent. It's a very beautiful ceremony. And it was led by a Native American elder named Fred Wampapa. And he opened the ceremony in a way that really struck me. He said that in his tradition, there was no word for trust, for hope. No word in, in that particular tradition for, for hope. And he said the reason is, is that Native Americans trust that everything is fine as it is. Imagine that, this moment, trusting just who you are and how your life is and how the lives of the people that matter to you are going is really fine as it is. When the Dalai Lama 
met with a number of Western teachers several years ago, he said that the thing that was most important to communicate and inspire in Western students was a trust in our own nature, a trust in the power of our awareness and our hearts to awaken and be free. That this isn't just a myth, a beautiful story of the Buddha's awakening, that the Buddha is really in each of us. And our path is to touch that and trust that, to really allow that to awaken. Much of the practice of mindfulness, as many of you have been discovering, starts off with, in the beginning, middle, and end, a mindfulness of how we don't trust our life, of how we push away this and grasp at that. The Buddha called this suffering, this basic fear or mistrust (laughs) whereby we continuously try to control our experience, grabbing on and pushing away that suffering. And he described it as rooted in this illusion or misunderstanding that we're separate selves. This is a basic teaching or truth that the Buddha described, that we're stuck in the sense of being separate. And if you think you're separate, what comes along with that is a sense of vulnerability, disconnection, frequently of deficiency. How we act when we think we're separate We have to defend ourselves. We need armor to protect our hearts from being hurt. We attach to things around us because we're incomplete. Each of us has a whole constellation of stories about this separate self that we call ourselves that have to do with how we're getting better, what we're screwing up, Do you notice how you're constantly monitoring, am I doing better at this or doing worse at that? We're constantly keeping track of this. And not only do we compare ourselves to ourselves, we are very caught, our stories are very mesmerized and caught in the sense of comparing to each other, better or worse. There's a Serbian proverb about our true nature, and it goes like this. Be humble, for you are made of dung. Be noble, for you are made of stars. Yet we get it all mixed up. Instead of feeling a sense of connectedness to the earth, the beautiful kind of humility and humbleness, because we think we're separate, we're fearful about these bodies we possess getting older, getting sick, and dying. We lose the beauty of a sense of connectedness and belonging and instead just subscribe to what's wrong with these earthly bodies. Instead of feeling the nobility and beauty of coming from the stars, here's what we do to it. We translate it to mean that in some way we're personally grandiose or special. So how can we trust who we really are when we're subscribing to stories about ourselves that are so based in better and worse? For many of us, sadly, the deficiency sense is really overwhelming. Much of spiritual practice is a letting go of these ideas of a deficient self and relaxing and opening to what is. When we pay close attention in mindfulness practice, we look at what the stories are really rooted in. And they're based on thoughts. And the thoughts are simply mental contractions. They're just waves of energy that we're believing that are usually powered by either fear or wanting. Look close, watch. In a couple of days, the instructions will be more and more. 
in the letting go of thoughts to just drop into what is and you can discover as you pay attention to your body fear and wanting driving these thoughts and these are what we believe that construct our reality frequently our thoughts are used to confirm beliefs we have we build up evidence against ourselves or against other people you can see that when you're thinking obsessively, stack it up. Sometimes they're used in a way that's quite different. It's more to excite ourselves, to keep our minds stimulated. Here's an example of that. This is from Deep Thoughts. This is Saturday Night Live. When I found the skull in the woods, the first thing I did was call the police. But then I got curious about it. I picked it up and started wondering who this person was and why he had deer horns. <laughs> we create a wild world of projections, and it's not that far from this. <laughs> Don't you know? You've seen it already, right? We use our thoughts to explain things, to explain how the world is. Rather than touching directly with our senses, we make up explanations. Here's one by Woody Allen. More than any other time in history, mankind faces the crossroads. One path leads to despair and utter hopelessness. The other to total extinction. <laughs> I pray we have the wisdom to choose wisely. <laughs> How's that for limiting? <laughs> <You know? laughs> the thoughts or stories of our culture are designed to set up expectations. All of us grew up with some idea about how our life or how a good life could be and should be and probably would be and got disappointed. I don't know many people that didn't. We were in some way fed stories about how it was possible to discover a happy, romantic, lifelong partnership that was relatively trouble-free and, and fun. Well, <laughs> we were given stories about how we could find some creative expression that would be interesting in work, that would cover our material needs, and then some. You know, we had these ideas on how a good life would look and be, and bit by bit, over time, had to readjust and accept. This Christmas, my son got a very different kind of book from your normal fairy tale, very different from Happily Ever After. And it's called The Stinky Cheese Man and Other Fairly Stupid Tales. <laughs> so in the main story, the Stinky Cheese Man story, much like the gingerbread man who cries, run, run, fast as you can, you can't catch me, I'm the gingerbread man. This one is, run, run, fast as you can, you can't catch me, I'm the stinky cheese man. But in this story, nobody ran after him, because he smelled so bad, you know? <laughs> and then there's this other story in it that I liked, called The Really Ugly Duckling. <laughs> now in this one, the really ugly duckling really was, and, and the other ducklings were jeering at him, making fun of him, but he somehow or other comforted himself by trusting that he'd grow up and be different and be beautiful and special. And he grew up to be a really ugly duck. You know? <laughs> See, my son really liked these stories. <laughs> A lot better than any happily ever after story that he was told. We live in this world of ideas, 
that's not the real world. Sometimes the thoughts and ideas we have are helpful and skillful. So before I say more about the limitations of living in our thoughts, just to acknowledge that a very part, important part of maturing in spiritual practice is to discover what skillful thoughts there are, what inclines us towards awakening, and draw on them and use them. But the big challenge is so much of our thinking is out of control, we're identified and lost in it, and it makes us small and separate. It creates suffering. One Zen master said, take the world of concepts in two hands and drop it. You know? You know? I have a, a t-shirt that I like wearing that says, meditation, it's not what you think. <laughs> If we believe the stories we tell about ourselves and about this world, we're bound to go around in some kind of deep way feeling not enough. How could our stories about ourselves be the whole of who we are? So there's a pain or sadness or suffering in that when we live in that world. I'm a psychotherapist and I'd say a lot of what happens in the encounter is the sharing that people have about feeling that they're skimming the surface in living. That, that life's happening and passing by, but they're just not really touching a full sense of aliveness. And there's a certain type of despair that comes with that. And when they look close, there's a sense of having been preoccupied while life was happening. That's what happens when we're lost in those thoughts. There's another side to it, to what happens when instead of living in our hearts, our bodies, on this earth, we get lost in a world of thoughts, when we stay there a lot. And that is that we actually violate the parts of our being that we're not living in. I'd like us to talk about that a little because it's such a profound and pervasive thing happening in our culture. And just to start, I'll make a sweeping generalization. <laughs> I didn't know whether I was going to say this tonight. but So here we are, humans, as a species, evolving. And what seems to have happened is that our main mechanism, when we don't trust, when we fear, life, is to take refuge in thoughts and then try to control and dominate the world from that position. That what we do when we're afraid, afraid of life, is we pull away from it and pull into thoughts which are static, which are just fragments that reflect life. But then we try to control and impose our will to make things okay from that thought world. And there's devastating consequences. Think about how it affects our bodies. When we're not living in our bodies, we don't listen so well. We can't really respond to the natural rhythms and needs of our body cells. Our extended sense of that is, if we're not really living, connected, and belonging to this earth, how terribly we have violated this earth. I don't need to say a lot about it. Most of you know what it's like, that we can't drink water that hasn't been treated. That in some parts of the country you can't breathe without risking respiratory problems and can't stay in the sun a lot because of skin cancer. We've really hurt ourselves and the other life forms that are part of this earth by not sensing connection, by being one step removed. This is a quote from Chief Standing Bear of the Lakota Indians. He writes, The white man does not understand America, nature, earth. He is too far removed from its formative processes. The roots of the tree of his life have not yet grasped the rock and the soil, 
the white man is troubled by primitive fears. When we don't trust this life, it's very easy to, in some way, be violent towards it. We get violent towards each other when the human heart is not connected to the earth, to our body. It gets cold and hard and unkind. That's out of fear. When it's unsafe, we're biologically wired to defend and attack. I think of members of gangs as perhaps those that feel most unsafe on the planet. There was an interview done in the Washington Post several months ago of gang members, and one of the questions was asked was, if you were disrespected, you know, would you shoot someone? And one out of three gang members said, yes, if I was disrespected, I would feel it was fine to shoot someone. That's one out of three. Eight out of ten had been shot at. So many people live feeling unsafe. And out of that feeling of unsafe, attack and hurt others. We know it in ourselves, in our personal lives, that when our needs for love or attention, recognition, aren't met, the ways in which we can violate others by being demanding or controlling. We know what it's like when we're hurt. Most of us still have that reflex to strike back or to in some way push away another person by ignoring them. We know what it's like to be personally violent. Finally, when we're disconnected, from our beings, we're violent to our own selves. So many of us have abandoned ourselves in some way, not really listened to the deep longings in our beings, numbed ourselves out, medicated ourselves with either food or drugs or too much distracting activity. This is Rumi. Does sunset sometimes look like the sun is coming up? Do you know what a faithful love is like? You're crying. You say you've burned yourself. But can you think of anyone who's not hazy with smoke? I just saw Little Women recently, and some of you have seen it, but I'll share this anyway. In one scene, Jo is about to go out for the evening in her new frock, and she gets singed by the fire, and very upset says, well, I'll just have to go, but I'll have to keep my back to the wall for the whole evening. And so it is with so many of us that in some ways we've burned ourselves or been burned, and we're hiding something. And in our ways of relating to each other in the world, we keep covered, we keep armor on, we keep our back to the wall. In our daily life, this sense of not enough, not good enough, something to cover, something to compensate for, takes form in the way that we're busy. I don't know many people that aren't busy. We're all racing away from something, trying to make up for something. Most of us have pretty active self-improvement projects going, and if we're not busy on that, it's other improvement projects, you know, improving the person nearby. (laughs) This is Thomas Merton. There is a pervasive form of contemporary violence, and that is activism and overwork. The rush and pressure of modern life are a form, perhaps the most common form, of its innate violence. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is to succumb to violence. 
The frenzy of our activism neutralizes our work for peace. It destroys our own inner capacity for peace. It destroys the fruitfulness of our own work because it kills the root of inner wisdom which makes work fruitful. You know, the Chinese word for busyness is heart-killing. So workaholism isn't some benign facet of personality. It's actually a really sad defense against feeling like failures. And it really prevents us from living fully, this busyness which is so much of the beauty of coming together in a retreat like this. Because that's one habit. It's really hard to pretend we're playing out, right? How can you act busy here? (laughs) Although I've seen people do that. (laughs) So the question is, and the challenge is, how can we come to know ourselves, to trust our true nature, to awaken to that, when there's so much strong conditioning to mistrust ourselves, to resist life, to run away. The Buddha said that he spoke of only two things, and that was suffering, which we've been talking about, and freedom from suffering. In describing the path of freedom, the Buddha's own experience was that our freedom comes from awakening our awareness, a kind awareness, and bringing that kind awareness to all the conditions of our life, to all the moments of our life. And he described really two qualities that comprise this awareness. It's sometimes been um, metaphorically depicted as two wings of the bird, that we cultivate the wings of wisdom and compassion, which are both our nature. But we bring intention to cultivating these two wings so the bird can fly. That our transcendence is opening out of a small sense of being to becoming our true nature, beings that just dwell in a wise and kind awareness. That is what transcendence is. Transcendence is not to become something different or other than what we are, but rather to open to what's already there, to touch and trust and be with what's already there. Our practice directly cultivates these qualities. And I'd like to talk, to talk about them as two separate aspects of awareness, although they're very interrelated, and in some ways one. First, as the instructions that you've been receiving um, are clear on, the practice is about bringing a mindful attention to just what's here this moment. The only way to cultivate understanding, to really know something, is to bring an awareness to it that neither judges and pushes it away or grasps. We know that with each other. You can't really understand a person you're close to in a moment that you're criticizing them or putting them down. You can't understand them, really see their essence, if you're wanting something from them. So our practice is to have the intention to bring this non-judging awareness just to what is. The first step is recognition. Sometimes we encourage noting. It doesn't have to be an active mental noting, but there's an active recognizing of what's there. The naming can be useful sometimes. You know, the shamans say that once you name something, then you have power over it. 
Well, in mindfulness, once we really recognize, really notice what's happening, in that moment, we're no longer identified with it. We become the awareness that's noticing. Another way of describing it is we disidentify from the experience. We no longer become lost inside that wave of experience when we've recognized it's happening. I had a dream about four months ago. It was a horrible dream. And in this dream, I was giving a Dharma talk. And while I was giving the Dharma talk, I fell asleep. And in this dream, I woke up realizing I had fallen asleep giving this talk and not knowing what I had said and feeling very embarrassed about what I possibly said. And sat there feeling embarrassed and going through all this stuff until finally I said, hey folks, I've been asleep. And in the moment of telling them, they all just kind of laughed a little. They liked me, I liked them, it was okay. But in the moment of me fully recognizing and naming it, there was freedom from it. And I woke up then feeling really fine about the fact that I had fallen asleep. We fall asleep all the time. It happens all the time. We've, every moment that we get identified or lost in a thought, an emotion, and we recognize it is a moment of waking up, of coming back to our wakeful true nature. So that's the first step, is to recognize what's happening. The second step is to let it be. Now letting it be is very close to letting go, because what happens is it's our habit to add on things. It's our habit when we have an experience of an emotion, when we're fearful, let's say, to add on some things like, I'm a bad person, and this is going to continue to be scary, and there's no way out, or whatever. So the next step after recognizing, ah, fear, is to let go of what's around it. Just let it be there. To let go and let be. I'd like to read you a very short essay about letting go, because it's so much the heart of the practice, and especially when we're caught in those intense binges of thinking where we're really lost and trapped. This is Ajahn Sumedho. The practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. You simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, letting go. Rather than try to develop this practice and then develop that and achieve this and go into that and understand this, and read the suttas and study the Abhidhamma and then learn Pali and Sanskrit, get ordinations in Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana, write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go, let go, let go. I did nothing but this for about two years, Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist (laughs) conferences. The essence of practice is this shift in identity from being caught or identified with the contents of our experience to a letting go and an opening to the awareness that recognizes in a caring way just what's there. That's the essential shift of awakening. It helps me to think of it as that Our being is an ocean of experience, and the different waves come up, and you've been noticing the waves. There's some patterns of them. The beginning of retreat, there's a preponderance of sleepy waves. 
We all have our own particular favorite judgmental waves. There's thought waves, there's wanting waves, there's restless waves, there's angry and hurt waves. The freedom in our practice is to begin to recognize the waves when they're arising and then allow them to be by relaxing back into the ocean of experience so that they're included but we're not limited to them. Do you see the difference? This opening from a small self that's identified with the waves to a boundless sense of being that includes them. Some of the most profound, difficult, yet freeing experiences we can have is when we begin to sense the more subtle self concept, ideas that arises and begin to let go around those. There's a quote that goes, People think angels fly because they have wings. Angels fly because they take themselves lightly. (laughs) When we're not identified in our thoughts about ourself, about this world, the self gets freed, it gets lost in a way. But it gets freed into the ongoing and ever-changing experience of sensations, of emotions, of aliveness. We become fully alive. And that is our path of practice, to wake up to a very full aliveness, a direct, immediate experiencing of life. This opening up, this opening up out of a particular wave of thought or experience into the sense of the whole is experienced by the mind as becoming a clear space of awareness that contains all of life. That there's room for it all. A clear, open space of awareness. It's felt by the heart as open, compassionate awareness where all of life is sensed as interconnected. This is the second wing of the bird, this sense of compassion, of care towards what's there because we're related, we belong, it's all connected. It's cultivated with metta, with compassion practices, with the intentionality of our heart to open any of the practices whereby we bring well-wishing to ourselves, to each other, where there's a sense of kindness intentionally brought, awakens the natural compassion of our hearts. Here at retreat, many of us touch this sense of interconnectedness when we start getting quiet and then we go out for a walk and we listen and there's birds and winds, and we see the beauty of the trees and the silhouettes, and we really feel a part of the woods and the environment. And there's a very freeing, joyful experience that comes with that, of losing the self and becoming part of the world. This is a poem called Earth Roots. What are earth roots, my daughter asked, when she was just a child, examining each flower in its home? Earth roots are a special connection, a sacred thread that joins our spirits to every living thing, I said. Earth roots join me to you and you to birds and flowers. In her hand, my daughter held a sparrow with a broken wing. She said, can earth roots make the sparrow fly again? The sparrow can become a rose in time. Just as the rose takes wing, I said, Earth roots make all things possible. My daughter did not understand these things until she had a daughter of her own. Then she saw the way earth roots join the sparrow to the rose. All spiritual traditions and cultures have ways of helping to wake up this sense of communion, of freeing us from a sense of being separate to a sense of real belonging, of joyful community, of connection. They happen through singing, dancing, being in nature, 
psychotropic plants, lovemaking, silence, listening, prayer. We all long for it. It's what brings us here. We long to feel connected and whole. We long to feel that sense of belonging. What each spiritual tradition seems to offer is some set of rituals that allow us some intentional means to reopen our hearts and to feel alive. And we're in the season of it. You know, there are many cultures, many traditions that are honoring this time of darkness as a time to discover a sense of light and of joy. I know for myself that it was very, very busy approaching these holidays. And I kept hoping for and wanting to sense the spirit of the season, but not quite there, just kind of pressed. And that was the same with a number of people I ran into. And then I went home and was with my family. And my mother started talking to me and saying the same thing, that she was really hoping for something, that experience, that sense of connectedness, but it just wasn't alive in her. And on Christmas Eve, we went to a, a um, gathering, and a story was read, and I just want to share it with you because we loved it so much. And in this story, the author begins by describing herself as outside in the evening on a cold and very beautiful winter night on a farm feeding hay to some sheep. She writes... I couldn't understand it. I hadn't received that elusive, ephemeral feeling that is called the spirit of Christmas. I can't explain it. It makes no sense to me. I only know that I get it. It manifests itself by tears in my eyes, a catch in my throat, and an inner glow that reaches out to everyone around me and says, this is Christmas. Throughout the years, It has come in different ways. When I was a little girl, I got it on Christmas Eve. I sat in the hushed and reverent sanctuary and beheld the mystery. The shepherds are dressed in bathrobes and towels. The kings sang their song just a trifle flat, and there was a distinct click as Mary turned on the flashlight in the manger. And afterwards, I waited for my little brother, and we walked the two blocks home from church. We wanted to hurry, but we couldn't, or our candles would go out. Various groups of people walked cautiously down the icy street, shielding their candles with mittened hands and pausing to share their flame from the big church candle. Fat, lazy snowflakes nimbused around the street lamps, and when we started up our front walk, our parents flung wide the door, sending love into the night. We hurried then to light the house candles from our precarious, precious flames. I got the Christmas spirit then. As I've grown older, I've gotten it at different times, when I've put money in a Salvation Army kettle, when I've seen earnest young faces uplifted by the glory of the Hallelujah Chorus, when I held our firstborn on her first Christmas, when our younger daughter read us a Christmas story she wrote, when our postmaster smiled and said, Merry Christmas, Lucy. This year I'd done everything. The girls and I had giggled over getting Daddy's present while he was right there in the drugstore. The record player had been going since the middle of November with everything from the Messiah to write Christmas. I had sat at our old parlor pump organ playing Christmas carols, and my husband and our daughters had gathered round to sing. I had made mincemeat and baked cookies and Christmas bread until the house was redolent with the scent of spices. I had hustled and bustled with shopping and wrapping and making gifts. We had decorated the house and then sat quietly looking at the tree and listening to carols. And the spirit hadn't come. I leaned on the top board outside again, listening to the quiet munch of the sheep as they ate their hay. A truck on a distant curb changed gears and then suddenly there was silence. Even the sheep stopped chewing. There was nothing but snow-covered, cold-clad silence. 
and the sun sank. I walked back through the gathered gloom to the welcoming house, tears frozen on my lashes, my heart pounding with joy. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. It comes out of stillness as we begin to bring a presence to what is, we become less the busyness and more that still open space that just pays attention with care. And when we listen in that way, in that attentive, respectful, and caring way, our hearts naturally open to whatever we see. You know the Krishnamurti saying that You pay attention because you care, which means you love. When we really pay attention, we connect in love. When we pay attention to other living beings, really pay attention, we don't want to hurt them because we sense their consciousness, their aliveness. We sense Buddha nature. This is compassion. Here's a Sikh story. It's about a holy man. He gave two men each a chicken and said, Go kill them where no one can see. One guy went behind the fence and killed the chicken. The other guy walked around for two days and came back with the chicken. The holy man said, You didn't kill the chicken? The guy said, Well, everywhere I go, the chicken sees. When we pay attention in this way, when we really pay attention, we become naturally kind. This is another word, another word is bodhicitta, the awakened heart-mind. You know, both words are the same in Chinese, heart and mind. When we pay attention, we become naturally kind, our hearts open. The sixth Zen patriarch writes, good friends, My teaching of the Dharma takes awareness and kindness as its basis. Never mistakenly say that awareness and kindness are different. They are a unity, not two things. Awareness itself is the substance of kindness. Kindness itself is the function of awareness. At the very moment there is awareness, then kindness exists. The two wings of the bird, awareness and kindness. When we rest in this attention, there's really a sense of fullness. All the suffering of not enough seems to disappear as we settle into the vitality of the moment. Zen Master Genza writes, The point of life is to know what's enough. Why envy those others? With the happiness held in one inch square heart, you can fill the whole space between heaven and earth. We do a lot of paying attention to where we're holding on. It's an equally important practice to pay attention to where there's a sense of enough, there will be many moments of that. You have noticed it already, the moments of enough when you're just resting, sipping tea, or walking outside and then all of a sudden stand still and look and listen, or perhaps lying down to rest for the evening. But to become as familiar with that as anything else, as a place of awareness, that sense of enough, One Zen nun described her way of relating to this in the words, Thank you for everything. I have no complaints whatsoever. (laughs) Can you imagine living with that? That sense of no complaints, just however it is, thank you. A contemporary version, a little different, 
Living, I don't know why. Dying, I don't know when. Going, I don't know where. I'm amazed I'm so cheerful. (laughs) In each moment of caring recognition, in each moment of mindfulness, really noticing what is with care, is a moment that we open to our true nature. In the moment that we notice what's there, we become that awareness, that heart, that can hold just what's alive in us. Touching this deepens our trust. The Buddha has a phrase that is the greatness of heart that can hold it all. And it refers to a heart that is that boundless. There's an incredible sense of well-being that comes when we begin to trust that, that that's what we are, who we are, what we're awakening to. Far more delicious than any moment of a passing pleasant state is that sense of well-being that comes when we begin to trust our nature, trust that we can be with anything, accept and embrace any moment that arises. In those moments that we trust, there's truly a sense of enough. I'm enough, this moment's enough, this life's enough. And when there's enough, that feeling of enough, we can live it fully. We can really let go and be this life. So let's just sit together in silence for a few moments. <laughs> 